It's important to note that the stablecoins are known entities and have dealt with legal action in the past. If governments where custodians are located, or where they can be extradited to, or where large countries have sway over, want to crack down on cryptocurrencies, they would have an easy time with smart contract blockchains. Governments could quickly seize custodian funds, blacklist all stablecoins, and render a large portion of DeFi insolvent across all smart contract platforms. Or they could enforce a hard fork with top companies and stablecoin custodians to create certain rules that the government wants the blockchain to have, like certain surveillance backdoors or changes to other variables of the protocol. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to the show. This is Bitcoin Audible, and I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. We are continuing our piece from yesterday, um, and an excellent, uh, a really excellent breakdown from Lynn Alden on her newsletter uh, is called Proof of Stake and Stablecoins, a Blockchain Centralization Dilemma. Uh, it's uh, it's her analysis of uh, very very similar, particularly the first section to um, uh, one of the other pieces we read by her on an economic analysis of Ethereum. Uh, but basically, she's breaking down the nature of the proof of stake protocols out there, uh, what they're for, um, what they are not for, and the potentially dangerous centralization pressures and points of control. That these networks actually have trying to take an honest approach with them um and i really appreciate this piece I, I i'm a huge fan of her blog if you have missed part one yesterday we read it she laid down the groundwork for the discussion today so if you haven't yet go back and check it out otherwise let's go ahead and jump into part two before we do however i want to thank the teams who help make bitcoin audible possible uh, we've got the Bitcoin 2022 conference. They are sponsoring the show, and literally, they've created the most epic in-person conference out there. Ten percent off your tickets with code Guy Swan. <clears throat> excuse me, Guy Swan at checkout. Um, link and all that stuff in the show notes. Then we got Swan Bitcoin, longtime sponsor and a huge fan of everything they're doing over there. It's the best way to buy Bitcoin and gift Bitcoin. Uh, smash buy, automatic recurring purchases, low fees, no shit coins. It's just the best. Um, swanbitcoin.com slash guy. And for purchases that still require fiat, use the fold debit card. You get sats back on literally everything. You get a spin with every purchase. You get your bills. I like I, This is my main account, literally. You can get up to 100% back even. Uh, even actually a chance to win a whole Bitcoin. They are extending the Audionauts a 20% discount with uh, code Bitcoin Audible. And lastly, the Bitbox hardware wallet um, for keeping all of those precious sats safe after you spin your fold card and get some sats back and you do your weekly purchases on Swan. You're going to put it behind your keys with an easy to use, secure device, the Bitbox O2. 
discounts, uh, referral links, which are actually a really great way to support the show with no cost to you. In fact, you get discounts. It's a 5% discount for the BitBox. Um, all the links and discount codes and everything are in the show notes. Check them out. But with the love properly sent and the piece ready to go, it is time to get into part two of Lynn Alden's incredible piece with the next section, and it is titled The Stablecoin Centralization Problem. Stablecoin custodians represent another attack vector and centralization problem against smart contract platforms that have DeFi as a key part of their ecosystem, whether they are proof of work or proof of stake. This problem affects protocols like Ethereum and Solana, but not really Bitcoin. Note, the summary of this chapter, for those that want to skim parts of this otherwise long article, is that any smart contract blockchain that relies heavily on DeFi for its use case can have the outcome of its hard forks significantly determined by centralized stablecoin custodians. These custodians can nullify the value of all stablecoins on whichever side of the fork they don't view as the correct one, which severely reduces the survivability of that side of the blockchain by rendering its DeFi mostly insolvent. This can include picking the forked chain over the original chain, and therefore all variables of the blockchain are potentially mutable, even if the node network doesn't like the changes. Stablecoins are tokens on a blockchain that represent units of fiat currency, and most commonly, the US dollar. Now that smart contract blockchains exist, they can be used for various purposes. One popular purpose is that an entity collects dollars and then issues tokens on a smart contract blockchain that represent redeemable claims on those dollars, and these tokens are called stable coins because they are stable against that dollar and are ostensibly backed one for one by dollars and dollar equivalents. Although that last part has historically been quite controversial, since that's not always the case. Once stable coins are issued, people can then use whichever blockchain they are issued on to send and receive stable coin payments between themselves with no centralized third party. From a user's standpoint, stablecoins are a significant technological leap over existing bank payment systems, especially for international payments of any size or large domestic payments. You can send someone a million dollars on another continent at 2 a.m. on a Sunday night and they can receive it in minutes, and you can verify the transaction on the blockchain. And that, by the way, is part of why governments are not particularly thrilled with their existence and are working on regulations to get them increasingly surveilled and censored. These types of stablecoins are, of course, quite centralized. The custodian holds the actual money, the collateral that backs all of these tokens. The custodians have the power to blacklist some of their tokens, which freezes them and basically makes them worthless. Tether has blacklisted over 500 addresses and counting. At the end of the day, the custodians determine which of their token liabilities meet their criteria to be redeemable, or even to be sent among peers. If you do something they or their governments don't like, 
or your tokens are on the wrong side of a hard fork of what the stablecoin issuer believes the preferred side of the fork to be on. Your money might not be worth anything anymore. There is now over $140 billion in stablecoin value on smart contract networks. This gives them tremendous power over the networks. To explore why, let's review the concept of a blockchain hard fork. Hard forks reviewed. A blockchain can have something called a hard fork, where developers and miners or validators decide to change the protocol rules and create a new set of blocks that don't conform to the rules of the existing node network. If there is a significant number of miners that agree on these new changes, they can sustain this new blockchain indefinitely. These changes could include major modifications of the money supply, block size, issuance rate, and other foundational rules of the protocol. Meanwhile, if other miners also continue to create blocks that conform to the existing node network, then the singular blockchain splits into two, like a fork in the road. The original blockchain and the new blockchain both continue in parallel. Bitcoin Cash is a well-known example. They significantly increased the block size compared to the original Bitcoin protocol and went in their own direction and subsequently lost a lot of value compared to Bitcoin. Bitcoin Satoshi Vision forked out of Bitcoin Cash and subsequently lost a lot of value compared to Bitcoin as well. The reason that Bitcoin is often called immutable by its proponents is that it is extremely resistant to changes. Once you have a full node, you have the software that recognizes blocks as either being valid or invalid according to the consensus rules of the protocol, such as block size, money supply, etc. If someone makes a hard fork, they basically just make their own blockchain and it doesn't affect yours and doesn't affect the software consensus that is the Bitcoin network. So far, Every hard fork attempt on Bitcoin has been unable to gather a critical mass of users to move over to it. If developers and miners on your blockchain decide to create a soft fork, a backward compatible smaller change that does conform to the rules of the existing node network, but also narrows them, then they can do that and you can operate with the network whether or not you personally decide to upgrade to that new subset of rules that constitutes the soft fork or not. Either way, you're still compatible with the network. This is why in the 2015 to 2017 block size wars, extremely powerful forces could not overcome the power of individual users running their own nodes. The majority of miners, the near-monopoly producer of mining equipment at that time, several of the biggest Bitcoin-related exchanges and companies, and some of the influential early developers, all tried to change the Bitcoin network to their preference and were rejected. It's hard to describe how big of a combined assault that was. It was like the movie Avengers Infinity War where the entire team of Avengers, including Iron Man, Thor, Hulk, Captain America, Black Widow, Black Panther, Spider-Man, 
the Guardians of the Galaxy, Scarlet Witch, Vision, and Doctor Strange teamed up against Thanos and still lost against Thanos. Thanos was inevitable in that movie. Likewise, Bitcoin was immutable thanks to its user-led node network, and it proved it in the field in 2017. It doesn't mean it would resist every challenge, but with this event, it has withstood a far bigger challenge to its decentralization model in the field than any other cryptocurrency. Before and after failing to change the Bitcoin network, many of those people created numerous hard forks of Bitcoin, with the most well-known one being Bitcoin Cash. When a hard fork happens, each user keeps their existing coins, and that network continues to run without acknowledging the existence of the hard fork since those blocks don't conform to the rules of the network. And also gets the new coins. So when Bitcoin Cash split from Bitcoin, if a user originally had 10 Bitcoins, she now had 10 Bitcoins and 10 Bitcoin Cash coins. She could keep both sets of coins, or she could sell the sets of coins that she didn't want, assuming they are worth anything, with real buyers, and buy more of the ones she wants. Users mostly chose to sell the Bitcoin Cash coins in that instance, and so Bitcoin Cash coins lost tremendous value compared to Bitcoins. In addition, the Bitcoin Cash network had far fewer miners, and thus was less secure against 51% attacks. The divide has only grown since then. If just 1-2% of miners from the Bitcoin network decide to attack the Bitcoin Cash network and overwhelm its hash power today, they can do so. What we know as Bitcoin, or BTC, is the blockchain that has not undergone any formal hard forks. It's compatible with nodes that go back many, many years. Bitcoin Cash, or BCH, and Bitcoin Satoshi Vision, BSV, and other blockchains are the ones that are hard forks, meaning they split and were not recognized as Bitcoins by the existing node network, but instead became their own thing. Ethereum is different in this regard. What we know of as Ethereum, or ETH today, is a hard fork of a hard fork of a hard fork of a hard fork of a hard fork. It purposely updates via hard forks. In fact, the minor altcoin ghost chain known as Ethereum Classic, or ECH, is the original Ethereum blockchain, at least out of the Ethereum blockchains that still exist. In Ethereum's early days, a massive, flawed smart contract was exploited due to poorly written code, and rather than let it play out as coded with investors losing money in their failed project, developers rolled back the entire blockchain with a hard fork, and due to broad community support, that hard fork became the dominant chain. The original blockchain where that change was not rolled back, mostly abandoned, became Ethereum Classic. Since then, Ethereum has continued to hard fork a number of times to make updates, but those other chains that it forks from get abandoned without a name, since they are not as contested by anyone with significant resources like the Ethereum Classic chain was. Since Ethereum updates via hard forks and has difficulty bombs inserted into its code on the existing pre-fork chain, 
it gives developers a lot more control over the direction of the network than nodes. The Ethereum node network doesn't realistically have the power to reject changes in the way that the Bitcoin network nodes do, since a hard fork moves beyond their existing nodes anyway, and there are difficulty time bombs in Ethereum's code. This gets users and miners to regularly agree to switch to new hard forks that developers come to consensus on. In fact, Ethereum experienced an unintended chain split in November of 2020 due to an update bug, and another unintended chain split in August of 2021 due to an update bug. Bitcoin proponents often criticize Ethereum's level of centralization and ease of mutability. Ethereum proponents often defend it as necessary to change it into something better, to update faster. It's a different set of philosophies, but it's important to realize how different those philosophies are in the technical sense. Stablecoin Custodians Smart Contract Fork Deciders Apart from difficulty bombs and things like that, there are powerful centralized forces in Ethereum that can dictate which hard fork is successful if a hard fork occurs. Seeing as how both intentional and unintentional hard forks happen with Ethereum quite often, that's a relevant fact. The Ethereum Foundation remains a powerful force for determining the direction of Ethereum. Consensus, which contributes to development and runs the Infura node infrastructure, which if it goes down basically brings down a large portion of Ethereum functionality, as it did in November 2020 due to the chain split, and owns MetaMask, the key wallet application used by tens of millions of Ethereum users for DeFi apps and NFTs, is another powerful influence over the direction of the network. But besides those two obvious centralization hubs, the often overlooked sources of power are the largest stablecoin custodians. They have basically enough power at this point to dictate which Ethereum blockchain is valid in the event of a hard fork. With $115 billion in assets between them, the two largest stablecoins have a lot of influence over Ethereum and other smart contract blockchains. When a hard fork happens, stablecoin custodians cannot recognize both sets of tokens as redeemable for their money, since there are now twice as many total tokens, two full sets, one for each fork of the blockchain. They have to pick which blockchain is the valid one in their eyes for which they accept redemptions of their tokens for money. And whichever one they don't recognize as valid has its DeFi and other stablecoin value eradicated. Most of the $100 billion in AUM locked up in DeFi protocols, the core lifeblood of Ethereum, is reliant on centralized stablecoins as well as the stablecoins that are used by centralized offshore exchanges or that are being used for payments. So, Ethereum users can't necessarily fall back on their node network defense if developers and large entities want to change any of the rules of the underlying protocol, including money supply or any other variable. If a hard fork happens and some large entities and stablecoin custodians acknowledge this new fork as the new main blockchain, 
then it doesn't really matter what the existing nodes think. Their existing chain will almost certainly lose, with broken stablecoins and broken DeFi, and the new hard fork with new rules, but functional stablecoins and functional DeFi will win. And it's important to note that the stablecoins are known entities and have dealt with legal action in the past. If governments where custodians are located, or where they can be extradited to, or where large countries have sway over, want to crack down on cryptocurrencies, they would have an easy time with smart contract blockchains. Governments could quickly seize custodian funds, blacklist all stablecoins, and render a large portion of DeFi insolvent across all smart contract platforms. Or they could enforce a hard fork with top companies and stablecoin custodians to create certain rules that the government wants the blockchain to have, like certain surveillance backdoors or changes to other variables of the protocol. A blockchain that is as self-contained as possible, like the Bitcoin network, is inherently more resistant to those types of attacks or centralization forces. There is no stablecoin provider, and there is no key wallet developer that could direct the Bitcoin network in any significant way, especially when it comes to enforcing hard forks. There are some stablecoins that run on layers on top of the Bitcoin network, but they don't run directly on the base layer of the protocol, and not in any size that is critical for the ecosystem. That is why I classify Bitcoin as being a form of money, while I classify most other cryptocurrencies as being a type of financial services equity, a more centralized platform with a pre-mine for the development of applications. Smart contract blockchains are semi-centralized to varying degrees, demonstrably mutable, and therefore are political in nature. That doesn't mean they can't go up in price, and doesn't mean they can't offer functionality, but it makes them inherently different things than global, immutable monetary assets, and so it's useful to separate them into these two conceptual buckets. How important is decentralization? In bull markets, and at times with no regulatory crackdowns or drama, technical details don't really matter. Wall Street actually kind of loves DeFi in the tactical sense, because in aggregate they understand the idea of leveraging, liquidity management, exchanging, and arbitraging inefficiencies, and don't really care about decentralization or technical details as much. But for cypherpunks, sound money advocates, those who care about immutability and money supply assurances over a decade-long investment horizon, and those who care about securities laws, they notice. It's often said that a blockchain is basically just an inefficient database. Users are willing to trade inefficiency to ensure decentralization. A blockchain, especially the truly decentralized variety, is a database that is small and tight enough that thousands or millions of entities around the world can store it on their local devices and constantly update it peer-to-peer using an established set of rules. A fully centralized database has fewer limitations because it doesn't need to be small and tight. 
A large service provider can have an utterly massive database contained in a server farm. That can make things run very efficiently, but unlike with a blockchain, outside entities can't directly audit it for content and changes and have no control over it. Your social media account is an item in a corporation's database. It can be deleted or changed and you have no say in this. You have no way to audit what information they hold about you in their database. The same is true for your bank accounts, your criminal records, your health records, any cloud services you use, etc. Corporations and government entities have databases and may at times choose to let you access those databases with limited permissions or not. They are fully centralized, non-auditable, and easily changeable by the organization that runs it. The killer application of a sufficiently decentralized database is money. Money is a ledger at the end of the day, and the more immutable it is, the better, at least for long-term storage. The ability to store value in a public ledger by simply saving or memorizing a number and transfer that value to others internationally whenever you want in a way that millions of other participants recognize and that no centralized entity can change or prevent or debase is quite useful. Smart contract layer one platform developers propose that there are many more potential applications that benefit from blockchain technology as well, besides just money. That remains an open question among cryptocurrency traders and investors. What are the other applications? Quick payments, for example stable coins, seem to be an answer, and potentially things like settlement of securities, gaming, etc. The biggest challenge with these proposals is that the more features you add to a blockchain on the base layer, the less small and tight it is, and therefore the less decentralized it tends to be. The question then becomes, are there shades of partial decentralization that people will accept in exchange for more features that the database can offer? And can those partially decentralized blockchains survive attacks disagreements, and other tests over the long term. Here's another way to phrase the question. Since we know that there are use cases for fully centralized databases, for example Twitter or Amazon Web Services, as well as use cases for fully decentralized databases, for example the Bitcoin network, are there use cases for a partially centralized and partially decentralized database? If the answer is yes, then that's basically the steel man argument for the existence of base layer smart contract blockchains like Ethereum, Solana, Avalanche, Algorand, and more. This set of hypothetical partially decentralized databases wouldn't conceptually compete with Bitcoin as a truly decentralized immutable asset. But could they coexist alongside Bitcoin indefinitely as a semi-open operating system for apps that benefit from partial auditability or partially decentralized control? For example, if a database is controlled to some extent by a central organization, but it is open source and it is designed in such a way that its contents can be independently backed up and audited in real time by certain high-performance external nodes, 
does that concept have an addressable market, perhaps for payments and securities settlement? And what about a federated database, meaning a database that requires the cooperation of several large organizations to change, or that requires proof of stake by large and generally oligopolistic entities, rather than a singular entity? Could that have long-term value? I don't have the answers to these questions, other than that with technology that currently exists, or that is foreseeable on the horizon as of this writing, they're clearly not suitable for truly decentralized global money in the same way that the Bitcoin network is. They might work for gaming, permissioned payment systems, trading, and that sort of thing. But time will tell if they can survive past the speculation phase and regulatory arbitrage phase that they are now in. Overall, I view some of them as probably lasting for a long time if regulators allow them to as information technology or financial services equities that pass the Howey test and are therefore securities. It's also worth noting that smart contracts can exist as layers on top of Bitcoin as layer 2 solutions. In fact, they already do exist in that form. But those ones aren't the dominant ones. The dominant ones are the versions that currently stand alone as layer 1 solutions, such as on Ethereum, Solana, and their various competitors. Smart contract applications. All right, let's pause right here and talk about Miami. This April, that is where you shall be. Bitcoin 2022. It is going to be the most epic gathering of Bitcoiners on the planet. And Bitcoin Magazine is literally going to bring an entire volcano to Miami and it's going to explode and all of the energy will be harnessed and we'll live mine a bajillion hashes while we drink and dance and we will sacrifice central bankers to our lord and god Satoshi Nakamoto. I mean, uh, maybe, you know, um, it'll be fiery but mostly peaceful and there's going to be games and stuff and you pay with lightning. I mean, I went too far. We're not going to... I apologize for saying that we're going to sacrifice people. We're not going to do that at Bitcoin 2022. We're not a cult, you know? It's just... We just like Bitcoin a lot, and it's a club, and we like to do things together. And Bitcoin 2022 is just so epic because Bitcoin is so great. And our Lord, I mean, and the, the developer who created Bitcoin, Satoshi, is, you know, he seems like a cool dude. And we're, go we're going to talk about that and stuff. And you can get 10% off. Come hang out with the totally normal and very down-to-earth world of Bitcoiners um, at Bitcoin 2022. And it is not a cult. There may or may not be volcanoes. Never say never. Smart Contract Applications So far, Decentralized Finance, or DeFi, and Non-Fungible Tokens, or NFTs, are the two popular smart contract applications aside from just storing and transmitting value that have gained significant market value on public blockchains. And both of them require additional complexity and thus tend to cluster on blockchains such as Ethereum and Solana that, as discussed in this article, are more centralized than the Bitcoin network. There is also a third category. Decentralized Autonomous Organizations, or DAOs, 
that have gained a lot of press in recent months, even though they're not on the official scale of DeFi or NFTs yet. I'll leave them for another article. DeFi includes decentralized exchanges, where users can trade various tokens between themselves, and includes decentralized platforms for leveraging tokens, meaning that users can earn yield by lending or pay yield to borrow with collateral. Many of them still have centralized companies running them. For example, Uniswap and Compound are both centralized VC-backed companies. But they do have open-source code that sophisticated users can navigate without using the company's interfaces, as long as the underlying blockchain is not compromised. And as previously discussed, those underlying blockchains do have centralized attack surfaces, so they are mutable to various degrees. NFTs include things like digital art, unique game items, or digital movie tickets that exist as unique items on a blockchain. Each category has some nuances about how they work. Digital art, for example, doesn't actually exist on the blockchain, but rather there's a pointer on the blockchain that links to where the image is stored elsewhere. It is like owning a signed receipt from the artist of that image. Unique game items can include digital pets, or in-game items, or in-game land, or property, and they can be sold to other players or even removed from the game and potentially accepted by another game that recognizes them. The criticism of these applications so far is that they mainly revolve around speculation. Here is how I described DeFi back in my January 2021 Ethereum article, for example. Quote, One of my concerns when reviewing the biggest use cases for decentralized apps is that a lot of the use case is circular and speculative. Ethereum is heavily used for decentralized exchanges of crypto tokens, crypto stablecoins that serve as liquid units of account for trading crypto tokens, and lending and earning interest on crypto tokens, which is a practice that serves as a liquidity and borrowing source for traders of crypto tokens. To a lesser extent, it is also used for gamified ways to earn or trade various crypto tokens. So it's a big operating system powered by crypto tokens for the purpose of moving around crypto tokens. A healthy banking system in the real world would consist of people depositing money and the banks making various loans for mortgages and for business financing to generate real-world utility. A speculation-based banking system, on the other hand, would consist of a bunch of banks taking deposit money and then lending to speculators in the nearby stock market, along with technology providers that make this easier. And then what those speculators are trading mostly consists of shares of those banks, shares of those tech companies, and shares of the stock exchange, resulting in a big circular speculative party. The biggest use case so far for Ethereum is a decentralized version of that circular speculation-based system. And data has shown that since I wrote that, it has become even more like this. According to the large blockchain analytics from Chainalysis, DeFi is almost entirely a trading, leveraging, and arbitrage environment for institutional-scale traders and professional whales, with individual retail traders strikingly absent. The same is generally true for NFTs. There has been a large frenzy of speculation around crypto punks going up, for example. 
A key problem is that these types of NFT sets are pretty easy to manipulate because each one has a unique price, making it hard to establish what the real demand is. There are two easy scams that can be done with this asset that can't be done with fungible liquid assets. The first scam is to bid up asset prices and trick buyers into thinking those prices are real and to buy into it. It's market manipulation, in other words. For example, a user can set up five different Ethereum addresses and start trading around an NFT to themselves at increasingly higher prices. Outside observers don't know that all these wallets belong to the same person, and that this is literally just insider trading. This is only possible with a non-fungible asset. You can't manipulate the price of an individual Bitcoin or an individual Ether on your own. You can only manipulate unique objects like, for example, CryptoPunk number 9998. Then, with prices seemingly so high, some people want to get in on the momentum and buy the NFT. So the person who is trading among their own wallets finally sells the asset at a higher price to that unsuspecting newcomer. When that newcomer tries to sell the asset, he or she is unable to find other buyers who actually want to pay that price. They don't realize that a lot of the liquidity and price escalating transactions were actually just manipulation. The second scam is to create a big loss to reduce tax liabilities in a fraudulent way. Again, you create several different wallets. One of them is linked to your real name and the others are anonymous. You buy an NFT with an anonymous account that you control for $200,000 and sell it to another anonymous account you control for $250,000. Then you sell it to your real name account for $500,000. Your real name account then sells it to another one of your anonymous accounts for $200,000, locking in a massive $300,000 loss. Your anonymous account can then potentially sell it for roughly what you paid for it, maybe $200,000 if the market hasn't changed much since you began this trick. This is a useful tax loss, which wasn't really a loss since you secretly paid it to yourself, that can offset your real crypto capital gains from other trading areas. To be clear, people who don't enjoy spending time in handcuffs shouldn't try those actions. This type of thing happens in traditional art as well, but it can happen orders of magnitude faster in digital form. And that's not to say that all of the liquidity and price action is fraud. I don't know how much is. It's simply that with the technology as it is, it is very difficult to distinguish what percentage is fraud and what percentage is real. And rising price action based on fraud can temporarily bring in real demand liquidity making the difference between the two rather murky. This is not much of an issue for large-cap liquid tokens, but it's potentially a big issue for non-fungible tokens. There was an example back in October 2021 where CryptoPunk number 9998 sold for $532 million. At first glance, this was the highest value art sale of all time. However, upon further analysis, it turns out that the buyer used a DeFi protocol to sell the asset to their self with a massive flash loan. They then tried to list it for a billion dollars. But of course, nobody wanted to buy it at that price. These are fake prices. 
So far, the most popular NFT application for retail investors may be Axie Infinity, which is indeed played by millions of people in the Philippines and in many other countries globally, and for which the in-game currency is accepted by some outside merchants. However, the economics of that game are also inherently speculative, because the majority of people can only make money if the number of new players continues to grow. A video game naturally runs into competition and a finite scale at some point, at which point the majority of participants would no longer be making money from the game. Now, the argument from advocates in favor of these dedicated smart contract platforms is that it's speculative here in the beginning, but that in time it will mature and be useful for more non-speculative utility related to a shared virtual economy. And I'm sympathetic to that view. After all, Bitcoin investors face similar allegations. In the early days, Bitcoins were frequently used in the dark web. And today, many people buy a little bit of Bitcoin as a speculation to start with. And then as they learn more about it, they start viewing it more like a long-term asset to hold rather than speculate with. Stablecoins One of the key smart contract applications that I think clearly is useful is stablecoins. From the user perspective, they're generally a better way to handle fiat currency payments than, say, international wire transfers or large domestic payments. You can send payments and clear them in minutes any time of the week. They will naturally face ongoing government regulation and be controlled and surveilled as part of the banking system in many cases, but it seems clear that they have utility for actual payments and will probably get increasingly incorporated into financial systems, either in the form of central bank digital currencies or private but highly regulated stablecoin issuers. This is simply due to automation and superior technology. When you send a wire transfer, the bank has to actively do something to process that transaction, and wires often get delayed or blocked or run into other problems as they flow between banks. From the user's perspective, it's often unclear which bank it got stuck in or who to call, and thus it often takes days to resolve. With stablecoins, it's the opposite. The automatic nature of the blockchain allows for peer-to-peer -peer transactions handled by software, including internationally and including with large amounts of money. The custodians are passive in that regard and let the technology work for them and only act in the event that they want to blacklist some of their tokens for some reason that they detected. In other words, regulated stablecoins allow for an automated peer-to-peer -peer payment system, but with an overlay of surveillance and censorship based on know-your-customer and anti-money laundering, or KYC AML, laws. Importantly, however, we see that stablecoins have been rather platform agnostic, Tether, for example, moved from primarily running on a layered solution on Bitcoin called Omni, red, to running on Ethereum, green, to increasingly running on Tron, blue. Is Tron a better blockchain than Ethereum? No, it's just cheaper. The less critical an application is, the cheaper people want it to be. In other words, stablecoins as payment solutions tend to optimize for low transaction fees and thus tend to concentrate towards efficient but centralized platforms. And all of the big stablecoins that underpin DeFi rely on centralized custodians anyway. 
Will banks eventually just set up institutional stablecoin payment rails themselves, or devise similar solutions that are cheap and efficient? That's essentially what Facebook has been trying to do with Novi and Diem. Optimize stablecoins for actual payments, rather than for trading crypto assets with. It remains to be seen which platforms will be long-term stablecoin winners, but it seems that they will trend towards rather centralized or federated networks to maintain low fees. The goal for many users isn't really decentralization. Instead, their goal is efficiency with regulatory oversight. Competing base layers or competing second layers. If we put aside the current issues with DeFi and NFTs and grant for the sake of further analysis that smart contracts have a very large total addressable market, besides speculation and besides stablecoins, then the question becomes, who will the winning platforms be? There's an interesting narrative competition between Ethereum and Solana and Avalanche and others in the past several months. Ethereum is the established smart contract blockchain with a wide network effect, but with significant scaling problems and very high fees. And hence, small retail users are mostly absent other than speculating on the tokens by buying them on centralized exchanges, and is trying to transition from proof-of-work to proof-of-stake. Solana is a younger, upstart, VC-backed smart contract blockchain that comes with impressive scalability, but at the cost of more centralization. Avalanche proposes a complicated solution to trying to address this as well. Then there is Algorand and others. DeFi and NFTs have thus begun to spill out from Ethereum onto these other smart contract blockchains. Many users are willing to sacrifice a bit of security for fees that are orders of magnitude lower. Ethereum's proponents often criticize, rightly, Solana as being too centralized, as their key defense for why Ethereum is better than Solana. But that puts Ethereum in a tight spot, because Ethereum's proponents then have to criticize Solana as being too centralized, while also defending the fact that Ethereum has these centralized attack surfaces and greater complexity compared to Bitcoin. In other words, it has to justify what the right level of partial centralization and partial decentralization is, and that it has achieved this sweet spot. As a result, smart contract platforms remain in the midst of a layer one war with each other as they battle for market share. Meanwhile, the Bitcoin network has layers that can bring smart contracts to itself, and they keep getting more sophisticated. The Liquid Sidechain, which is a federated sidechain that runs on the Bitcoin network, hosts NFTs including art, gaming tokens, stablecoins, and utility tokens. El Salvador announced plans to issue $1 billion of sovereign bonds on the Liquid network. Rootstock runs on the Bitcoin network as well, to bring DeFi and similar types of applications to the ecosystem. The Lightning Network also hosts all sorts of proto-applications focusing on peer-to-peer -peer data transmission. These Bitcoin-based smart contract layers are currently much smaller than on Ethereum. This is partly from culture. Bitcoiners tend to be holders more so than speculators, tend to not want to trade other types of tokens as frequently, etc. But it's also due to network effects and liquidity. Ethereum is still the dominant platform right now for pseudo-decentralized altcoin trading, leveraging, NFT speculation, and blockchain gaming, 
even though it is gradually spilling out onto cheaper smart contract platforms. It's unclear to me, looking five plus years out, where this smart contract liquidity will wind up. Will it stay on Ethereum? Will it continue to gravitate towards even more centralized smart contract platforms like Solana and Avalanche and so forth, so that they have an increasingly diluted multi-chain smart contract world? Or will speculation subside and the most utilitarian use cases find their way back to layers on top of Bitcoin, due to an appreciation of Bitcoin's more solid base layer? Ultimately, it partially depends on what governments want. Smart contract platforms with centralized attack surfaces can only exist at the pleasure of the government, so it comes down to how much regulatory crackdown they get versus how much regulatory approval they get. In a relatively non-hostile environment, smart contract platforms tend towards commoditization, competing based on price rather than quality. Liquidity trends towards whatever is cheap, centralized, and with sufficient critical mass. There are network effects for liquidity, but these are somewhat offset by high fees, which kind of serve as anti-network effects. In a more hostile environment with regulatory crackdown or other attacks, then the chains that are too centralized are likely to find it impossible to operate, whereas chains that make throughput sacrifices to maintain some degree of decentralization are able to operate to some extent. Liquidity would naturally need to flow towards the one or a smaller number of chains that are able to operate in that environment. My overall base case is to see a number of smart contract platforms continue to operate in increasingly regulated ways, constantly fighting for market share. Peer-to-peer, -peer, without DeFi When the Bitcoin network was originally created, there were no exchanges. If people wanted to buy or sell Bitcoins, they had to make individual arrangements. There would naturally be some organized meetups to make this easier, and the industry eventually formed centralized exchanges. But at its core, it is peer-to-peer -peer technology. If you and I meet in person, I can agree to send you a fraction of a Bitcoin from my Bitcoin address to yours in exchange for cash or any other good that you hand to me, and we can do it at a coffee shop. For people who prefer to avoid centralized exchanges, there are various peer-to-peer -peer technologies that make this easier than an in-person meetup like that. BISC, HODL HODL, Local Bitcoins and Paxful are all various ways to do peer-to-peer -peer Bitcoin exchanges and each have different trade-offs but don't require external tokens. An escrow multi-sig platform, for example, can serve as an independent third party. Buyers and sellers can enter into a two of three multi-signature contract online where the seller puts in their Bitcoins and they only get released when the payment from the buyer is made. A third party holds the third key of that contract, which ensures the Bitcoins are only released if both parties are happy, and can be an arbiter of disputes to accept proof if one of the parties is unhappy, before finalizing the transaction. Nigeria cut off crypto trading from its banking system a while ago. They didn't make owning or trading cryptocurrencies illegal, that's very hard to enforce, but instead they went with the simpler move of severing crypto from any formal connection with their domestic banking system. You can't take Nigerian fiat currency 
and easily send it to a crypto exchange to buy bitcoins, in other words. In order to understand the game dynamics of that decision, realize that Nigeria has persistent double-digit inflation and does not want capital flight out of its banking system into a sound money digital currency that its citizens can easily transact with, but also doesn't want to spark unnecessary social unrest by banning it, since it's very popular, and wants its citizens to be able to receive Bitcoin payments from abroad. Because Nigeria has a lot of good programmers and graphic designers that foreigners are happy to hire and pay bitcoins for, with a population of well over 200 million, Nigeria has little incentive to put resources into going door-to-door and make sure Nigerians aren't using bitcoins. But the point is, individual Nigerians need to find alternative ways to transact with bitcoins. And despite that, Nigeria has some of the highest adoption of Bitcoin usage, ranked at number six worldwide on a per capita basis. They often use peer-to-peer trading using Paxful and local Bitcoins to send and receive Bitcoins peer-to-peer, and they use Telegram groups and other types of coordination to exchange fiat currencies for Bitcoins. They don't use DeFi blockchain platforms in mass, DeFi, with its high fees, is mainly for large institutional speculators, arbitrage players, whales, etc. DeFi, thus far, is primarily for speculation. When people living in countries with GDP per capita of 2,000 US dollars, 3,000 or 4,000 are interested in Bitcoin, they don't pay $100 fees on Ethereum to mess around with NFTs or crypto trading or leveraging. They form groups to arrange peer-to-peer Bitcoin buys or sells, or they explore the cheapest, and often more centralized, smart contract platforms. The notable exception to this general observation is gaming. As previously mentioned, Axie Infinity is very popular in the Philippines, but a lot of that involves people grinding to get income from the game, and the economics of that only work as long as the game continues to grow. If new player funds don't continually pay out existing players' incomes, then the game is subject to a collapsing user base, unless it's inherently fun enough for most users to invest in heavily, despite no longer getting net income out of it. Protocol or Operating System Ever since Satoshi Nakamoto created Bitcoin, countless attempts have been made to improve on his design. For the major categories, people debated increasing the block size in exchange for nodes being harder to run, leading to greater centralization, and made new coins based on that. People debated reducing the block times in exchange for less network stability, and made new coins based on that. People chose to sacrifice some degree of auditability for greater privacy, and made new coins based on that. These coins consistently failed to even hold 5% of Bitcoin's market capitalization. The wisdom of the market has decided over rather long periods of time now that it's not interested in them, at least outside of niche circumstances. Meanwhile, the Bitcoin network itself continues to update slowly on the base layer via soft forks, meaning it only makes backward compatible upgrades and only when there is overwhelming consensus to do so. And it continues to update quickly on second layers, on sidechains, 
and with hardware and software providers in the surrounding ecosystem, but that don't affect the base layer. Some of these upgrades can make using the Bitcoin network faster, with more throughput, with more features, and or with more privacy. The big bullet point that the market is still deciding on, though, is this one. People debated adding more capabilities to blockchains at the base layer in exchange for greater centralization and attack surfaces and made new coins based on that. So, a big topic that the market is still assessing is whether these partially centralized smart contract platforms have a big role to play alongside the Bitcoin network, or if they'll eventually stagnate, as previous altcoin speculations have. I've seen a number of arguments for what the cryptocurrency field will look like after a long enough timeline. Ultimately, it comes down to whether the space evolves more like protocols do, or more like operating systems do. Protocols tend to be winner-take-all outcomes, and then hold their position for a very long time with like 90% market share or more. TCPIP is the protocol that the internet runs on and was developed in the 1970s. SMTP is the protocol for email and was developed in the early 1980s. Ethernet is the protocol for networking and was developed in the early 1980s. USB is the protocol for interfacing and was developed in the 1990s. In 10 or 20 years, we'll still be running on most or all of these, and they upgrade over time. These protocols all had competition initially, but most people today can't name those competitors. Operating systems tend to be oligopoly outcomes rather than winner-take-all outcomes. Multiple operating systems can coexist, even with their own network effect and areas of preference, but only a handful of them can realistically have widespread appeal with critical mass of developer adoption. The same tends to be true for social network platforms, as well as financial exchanges. Some people propose that after a sufficient maturity of the field, one blockchain will dominate the field, with the argument that they are protocols, and one protocol, for example Bitcoin, will win. Other people propose that the outcome will look instead like operating systems, with a small number of persistent large players. Even if one player might have 30, 40, 50% or more of the market, it won't have 90% or more, according to this view. A subset of this argument further proposes that Bitcoin and smart contract platforms like Ethereum aren't even really competing for the same market, and thus can be grouped separately with only moderate overlap. I don't have complete conviction on how that will end up. It's clear that Bitcoin won as far as decentralized proof-of-work blockchain money is concerned, and I think people underestimate the total addressable market size of that concept. Aside from that, will there be persistent large smart contract platforms, or will they one day fold into Bitcoin as layers on top of it? And to the extent that they remain as independent layer one smart contract platforms, to what extent will they dilute each other and fracture into commoditized, highly centralized, low-cost blockchains? The market is still sorting these questions out. Ultimately, my base case between the protocol outcome and the operating system outcome depends on the level of regulatory crackdown. 
For the protocol outcome, I can envision that smart contract platforms either get hit hard in their attack surfaces, draconian regulatory crackdown, for example, or they crumble under the weight of their circular speculation aspects. Meanwhile, Bitcoin has a decentralized base layer and the ability to build smart contract applications on top of it on other layers, and it can pull that value in over time as other blockchains run into problems. For the operating system outcome, I can envision that Bitcoin retains the dominant market share of global money and collateral in the digital asset space, with additional layers of complexity built on top of it as well, but that separate, large, smart contract platforms exist as regulated platforms for cheap, stablecoin processing, crypto gaming, altcoin trading, NFT speculation, securities settlement, and other applications. These would basically be equity securities. Final thoughts. Always consider trade-offs. There are about 15,000 cryptocurrencies in existence as of this writing, as identified by CoinMarketCap. Bitcoin's share of the total cryptocurrency market changes over time. But for example, it currently has about the same share of the market, around 40% now, against these 15,000 coins as it did four years ago against only 1,500 coins. So, altcoins have mostly diluted each other. The way altcoins market themselves generally is to highlight the shortcomings of Bitcoin as though it were old tech or boomer coin and then explain how they are better than Bitcoin. When you dig into them, however, it turns out that they are making tremendous trade-offs in one area to achieve additional capability elsewhere. They're sacrificing some degree of security, decentralization, auditability, and so forth in order to achieve things like more features, more speed, or more throughput. And now, the same thing is happening to Ethereum. Newer smart contract chains offer greater efficiency in exchange for more centralization and criticize Ethereum for not sacrificing more decentralization to scale faster. Satoshi Nakamoto picked his variables very carefully. Each one has been debated and tested. Quote, Governments are good at cutting off the heads of a centrally controlled network like Napster but pure peer-to-peer -peer networks like Nutella and Tor seem to be holding their own. Satoshi Nakamoto, November 7th, 2008 When truly better ideas come along for a small part of the protocol after years of proof, Bitcoin developers, supported by the users, eventually tend to incorporate them into Bitcoin with a consensus soft fork, such as the SegWit and Taproot upgrades. People often think of cryptocurrencies as one big similar asset class, but for the most part, proponents of other blockchains are often the most vocal critics of the Bitcoin network, as they attempt to market their coin over Bitcoins. Meanwhile, Bitcoin enthusiasts are among the crypto ecosystem's largest critics and tend to highlight the scams, hacks, wash sales, and centralization problems that are common among the altcoin cryptocurrency space. Crypto exchanges with numerous coins have an incentive to get you excited about new coins, 
because they make money from trading volumes. Even if it's just meme coins like Doge or Shiba Inu with briefly lived spikes, they want to get you in on the action, especially near the top of the spike when enthusiasm is high. Their financial incentive is for their users to hold a large number of coins and trade those coins frequently and are happy to highlight whatever coins happen to be popular at the moment. In that environment, it's the house, the exchange, that wins either way. To the extent that an investor chooses to speculate in digital assets other than bitcoins, they should always be able to answer the question, what are the trade-offs for one protocol compared to another before they decide to buy? Overall, I conceptualize bitcoins as monetary assets and smart contract platform tokens as equity securities. Each person has their own reasoning and penchant for speculation or long-term investing. But make sure you understand what you're getting into when you venture into blockchains other than the Bitcoin network, rather than buying into the marketing without verifying each claim. And that concludes Proof of Stake and Stablecoins, a Blockchain Centralization Dilemma by Lynn Alden. Now let's take a quick break because I want to know, did you buy Bitcoin today? Go to swanbitcoin.com slash guy, my referral, because you love the show and you want to help out and buy some. You can smash buy. You can increase your automatic recurring purchases. You can set up automatic withdrawals to your keys because if you haven't done that yet, you're going to need to. Proof of keys days. Uh, proof of keys day is right around the corner on January third. You have you have to celebrate that. You know, Swan Bitcoin basically celebrates Proof of Keys Day like every day. They want you to hold your coins, unlike some exchanges that will force feed you a bunch of total garbage tokens just to earn fees and encourage you to keep your Bitcoin under their control, and that may or may not rhyme with Boyne case. But Swan Bitcoin is the place to buy. And it doesn't hurt that they have some of the absolute best education. They are crazy helpful. They're constantly answering questions with people and meeting with the community. And they have some of the most hardworking and helpful Bitcoiners in this space working with their team. It is just a no-brainer. They are my personal Bitcoin purchasing manager. Uh, you know, you set it up once and you forget about it and you stack Bitcoin forever. This is the way Swan Bitcoin is the how swanbitcoin.com slash guy. Now go get some sats. All right. So there's some, uh, the really interesting thing about this piece that, and maybe I've even talked about this on the show. I don't know. It's, there's so many times that I come back to these ideas and I'll hear them again and maybe they'll stick a little bit harder the second or third time I've thought about them or read about them or something. Um, but it's frequent that I'll realize I actually did come across an idea somewhere else but this one with the stable coins i think maybe maybe it's just the size of defi now in respect to the base the the ethereum and these chains that are you know quote unquote propping it up um because you know we read about only in only the strong survive um and also actually lynn alden has a great quote from I actually think it's originally from the economic analysis of Ethereum piece. 
but talking about the nature of DeFi, that all of these are literally quote unquote decentralized problems around the idea of how to best most efficiently trade these non-equity tokens that kind of just behave like equity tokens except that there's no actual legal structure or ownership behind any of this and that it's just a way to essentially ensure a continuation of leverage this big circle around leveraging and more arbitrage and creating new tokens in order to enable better leveraging and more arbitrage between the new tokens so it's this constant feedback loop of we create more tokens and then create another token in order to more efficiently trade and leverage those tokens so that we can then stake it for some DAO token that will get us paid in the fees of other people trading these tokens to arbitrage to stake. You know, it's this huge, completely internal, quote-unquote, value mechanism of essentially arbitraging and swapping between separate arbitrages and speculations. But all of this, so much of that entire ecosystem is built on a foundation of collateral locked up in smart contracts. A lot of that collateral is WBTC, which is a token that is issued by a handful of central custodians who hold the Bitcoin and then issue a Bitcoin token that is suppo- that is redeemable for that. Um, but that's heavily centralized, which makes it vulnerable. Um, And then you've got it backed by Ethereum, but then Ethereum and all of these smart contract focused blockchains uh, are basically propped up on the value proposition that they are the quote unquote operating system for supporting this DeFi ecosystem. But the huge, huge swath of the collateral behind this ecosystem is about stable coins. Stable coins have become an incredibly important part of everything built on top of DeFi because it's the only thing it's the appearance that there's something being able that you're able to secure within the protocol so that it gives the appearance or or seeming nature and behavior of something that is decentralized because you can move tether or usdc you know the coinbase token uh as if it's a as if it's something on a blockchain well i mean it is on a blockchain but as if it's a a bitcoin as if it's ethereum like you you own it with keys and you transfer it that way as well but it's not decentralized it's it is explicitly backed by some central institution and that has a problem if the entire defi ecosystem is built on leverage from the reserve and staking of tether or usdc or any of the other any of the other uh, dollar tokens and that is what's putting the backdrop of support for the value and the contract for uh, i don't know ave Algor- I, I don't i don't even know there's so many things now even attempting to keep up with it is kind of a joke um but for any of these other contracts on these other platforms well then that means that and and if those are the very reasons that you need to get ethereum in order to interact with and use these platforms that seem to be constantly just hopping from blockchain to blockchain if if that's the case then essentially tether and coinbase or the potentially the governments and regulators who control 
Tether and Coinbase can pull the rug out from underneath the whole thing. And more importantly is that these things are on the base layer. So if the split, if a split happens, it will necessarily split all of the tokens written into contracts on the base layer. You can actually avoid this, uh, this degree of problem, this degree of uh, vulnerability by removing it, by, by, by extending it out to additional layers. Like, like in the context of, like let's say, Lightning Pool or whatever, and if you're attaching something to a hash on Lightning, then they would just pick which, um, which chain or, or, excuse me, which sort of transaction to hash that contract in, and they would simply pick the one that is most secure. And of course, has the most network, you know, if, if lightning channels, if you lose, and we're talking about, by the way, the, the example here that I've assumed in my head, but I haven't said anything about is in the case of a contentious hard fork or in the case of splitting the network, um, uh, whether they have the power to decide which split has value or whether a certain, uh, a certain fork has the value and they choose to remain on it, essentially. And if the token itself is not on it, but the token is a sidechain, it's, it's uh, tethered to it. Uh, that's not actually meant to be a pun, but you get the idea. Um, if it's hashed into a transaction on the blockchain or uh, uh, on the Bitcoin chain, Bitcoin time chain, excuse me, or into a lightning channel and secured with something like the lightning pool model, where it's just a multi-sig where both parties have to agree on the correct outcome or they each get their funds back, well, then they don't really have any sway over which one is chosen because it's just a, ha like it, it's just a hash. They just get to pick whether or not, like, let's say there's one fork that's very secure. There's the Bitcoin fork and then there's this Bitcoin, we're going to make it a lot better and fix everything fork, uh, but it has none of the hash rate and all of the nodes or like 90% of the nodes stay on the other one. Well, they can't do anything to hurt that one. They can't destroy the value of anything. All they do is destroy the value of anybody who's got a contract with them that, well, we don't want to do business with you anymore because you're not on our chain. Or essentially your half of the contract is for Bitcoin shitcoin Whereas my half of the contract, I want redeemed in real Bitcoin. Uh, and this is hashed to a transaction or a channel or whatever. And I run my node on Bitcoin and I followed the Bitcoin split of this. Or, well, the one that did not split, I guess, is actually the better way to term it. But if these things are written into the base layer, these things are a contract on the actual chain and the contract splits and that contract exists on both chains, then there are two tokens. There is double the tether. They cannot redeem both dollars, both tether dollars that have now been created. They get to pick which one is the real tether. Now, maybe they'll go along with whatever the users decide is the best Ethereum, but Ethereum forks all the time and undoubted one of these days one of them is going to be contentious if the stablecoin providers or the governments behind the stablecoin providers decide to make a strong stance on which one should be chosen who would risk challenging that when they have the say over whether or not DeFi is solvent and how much of Ethereum's value, how much of Solana's value exists 
if DeFi implodes? It's a really interesting question because I hadn't thought about how damaging that can be to have tokens on a base layer that become so become comparatively value to the chain that they are on kind of becomes an additional attack vector of somebody who has influence incredible influence well not even like just total total control over the solvency of the entire ecosystem like that's not a that's not a small thing and that's on top of all of the other centralization pressures that continue to be exacerbated and on top of the 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 blatant centralization of proof of stake and how essentially the largest stakers have no means of like no real way of competition because they get the most stake for having the most like they get the most inflation new coins for having the most stake already for already owning the uh, majority and there is no open competition the only way to do it is to get more stake from them if they don't sell then they never lose their share. They never lose their influence over what the true path, the the real history, um, that and the portion that they essentially get to have some degree of authority over. Uh, there's no questioning them. And for a ton of coins that have massive pre-mines, almost universally across the board, like that's just a recipe for putting all of the founders and vcs in the pre-mine in charge of the system like it's it's stocks all over again it's just a it's just a board of everybody who got in before the network was live and before there was actually some sort of a fair mechanism to distribute because oh we got to pay the developers well yeah yeah you also just really really want to print money but regardless i just thought that was a really interesting point and she does a great job of breaking down the analysis without any of the ridicule or sarcasm that i tend to talk about it in um but it's also interesting just in how the custodians and the exchanges like behave in in the system and, and how much how perverse the the shitcoin casino can be uh there's actually a great uh quote i've got it saved okay it says crypto exchanges with numerous coins have an incentive to get you excited about new coins because they make money from trading volumes. Even if it's just meme coins like Doge or Shiba Inu with briefly lived spikes, they want to get you in on the action, especially near the top of the spike when enthusiasm is high. Their financial incentive is for their users to hold a large number of coins and trade those coins frequently and are happy to highlight whatever coins happen to be popular at the moment. In that environment, it's the house, the exchange, that wins either way. And this is something I just think most, it just goes over the heads of most people. Most people don't think about the real incentives involved here. And this is why I think there's so many of these projects that, you know, a good way to frame it, I think. Um, if you wanted, if I was trying to articulate the simplest breakdown of why the projects have tokens and how to compare it to Bitcoin. I would say in the most general sense, Bitcoin was created because Satoshi Nakamoto had been working, the cypherpunks have been working to build a decentralized, trustless system for exchanging value and having digital payments 
for decades. And in order to accomplish that critical goal, the only way Satoshi saw a solution, a way to make it possible, was by creating its own token. Essentially, he had to print money. He had to make a money in order to make the system work. Where crypto is a bunch of projects that wanted to create their own money and had to think up of some sort of decentralized project that would excuse them to do so. There's nothing about basically any of the projects that I have ever known about or dug into, which in particular in 2017 I really did. I thought there was something there. I got sucked into the crypto casino. But there's nothing about them that require a token in, either, in, in order to make that a decentralized system. There's nothing about these decentralized storage systems, like the idea of decentralized storage, about the idea of a decentralized exchange between assets, or a decentralized social media, whatever it is, there's nothing inherent about those ideas that work in some incredibly unique way or just so much better because they have a token that they can't possibly work unless they create their own money. Now, they can make it sound great. It's all super cool. Look, you can do X, Y, and Z. We spent a lot of the money that we got in the pre-mine on the website. But I genuinely think they started with seeing the massive shitcoin speculation machine. And they said to themselves, I bet I can make a token too, and I can ride this thing, and we will find some really cool project to build with it. The pull to do that is extraordinary. So great, in fact, that I know this from personal pressures. I have thought about it many, many times in the past. It was so hard to watch just complete bullshit explode to tens of millions of dollars or more during the 2017 run and not go, you know, it just would be easy to do. But I think the vast majority of people who come in now don't know just how, how ridiculous the foundations of these things are, where they, they don't see the history first. They don't see where it came from. They don't see so many of the projects that came before and the mentality of those who've been here and watched these things explode and just how easy it is to copy or make a new one and change a little thing. And there's so many devs, so why not just make another one and tweak something and call it better? You know, they come in and they just see the website after it's up. They see the fancy icons. They, de they see the teams of developers that are hired after the fact to build this project that they've talked about. And they, they see the great, the great marketing, just unbelievable marketing teams from the, you know, insert coin here foundation and all the buzzwords your heart could ever desire. But I bet a whole Bitcoin in fact, I would bet 6.15 Bitcoin that if you could get into the heads of the creators, the people who started these projects, and go back to when the idea first struck them and see what they were thinking about, I bet 99.9% .9 of them were thinking exactly what I thought. 
man, I could make so much money. And even better, you know, because I'm such a good person, I could use all of that money for the benefit of mankind. I could build some really cool decentralized project. Maybe we'll finally have decentralized Twitter. And people need this. It's for the good of everybody that I have to print millions of my own tokens and sell them to all the noobs in the space. I don't know. It's something... It's anybody, anybody who's been dabbling in crypto or is in crypto, it's something to think about. Something you should think very hard about. And there's an element of the history of decentralized protocols and projects that can teach you a little bit something about that too. The vast majority of attempts at decentralized projects, even the ones that get built, they go nowhere. They don't succeed. Uh, the very, very few have actually built out and become parts of our world. And it's because decentralization has never really been super marketable. You know, for decades, it's just meant, and even still today, for the most part, outside of the things that decentralization can give that nothing else can. Basically, for all of time that we've tried to build decentralized things, it usually just means slow and kind of annoying to use. Whereas... All of the features, quote-unquote, I can invariably get instantly from Google or Apple or Amazon or whatever. There are very, very few exceptions to that. Would any of these projects really be massive? Would anybody be rushing to invest in them and care about all of the great things that they're building if you couldn't speculate on them? If you weren't rushing in to buy the penny stock token, do most people find these projects by looking for decentralized projects or through coin market cap, chasing charts with a whole lot of green? I don't know. I don't know. It's just... 2017 was a a rough time to watch all of the hype and then the utter pain and how many people just got demolished and uh, I, I myself was part of that crew you know I, I I dabbled and I got burned and I just feel like I'm seeing it all over again and there's no real avoiding it you know it seems like inevitably this is a natural process um, but I think it requires an honest analysis of everything that's going on and that's something Lynn Alden has done very good at, I feel like. Um, and more, more uh, like I said, less ridicule than me. Um, she, she does a very good job of just kind of looking at what is really happening because there is a massive amount of value in, in the crypto space. There's a huge DeFi ecosystem that is trading and speculating on all the things that you could possibly, if, if there's a way to do it, they are figuring it out, you know? Um, and it is here with us and there's, there's nothing to be done about it, but I feel like we're going to be in a space where a lot of people get hurt again. Um, and maybe that's, maybe that's an inevitable part of this. You know, a lot of people get hurt when they first get into Bitcoin, they buy in chasing green candles, just like so many of, so many of the people who enter this space and then Bitcoin, you know, punishes them because they just bought in on the hype and it crashes for 
month or two like it just now does and they freak out and they sell and then the green candles come back and they get oh i don't want to do that again no it's not going to actually fully recover and then it fully recovers and it blasts through the all-time high and it goes up again and then they freak out and they finally buy back in at three times the price they originally bought it and they're just it's exhausting you know there's it's it's a process it's a process and a mindset and there's just so much to learn um it can be daunting, you know, I can't, I can't really, you know, sometimes I, I get so frustrated with people pumping shit to others, but then there's also a part of me that, like, you can't blame people for ignorance in this space when everybody is ignorant, you know, like, the ocean of stuff to actually learn or make sense of to even begin to understand what's happening and what's the likelihood that a trillion dollar market of crypto crap is all just bubble nonsense, you know, like that, that seems really unlikely, you know, and if you don't understand the foundations of the, the market economy and the interest rate and the debt bubble we're in, there, there doesn't seem to be a good excuse for how something could grow so big and so imbalanced if there is no value there. And uh, Nick Batia talks about in the uh, article we read recently about Bitcoin and crypto are not the same. Um, he even talks about that, that these things behave much more like assets. They behave much more like tech stocks. Um, and, you know, if price is quote unquote king, like if price is the indicator of the market, there's value. There's, there's something out there. But what it is and how much, you know, NFTs might be a great example for, um, like NFTs seem like the most obvious if you just look at what it is, if you just like look at the actual functioning thing of an NFT, it's a signature. It's a signature and a hash. Um, and all of them essentially amount to that. And they point to a website that stores the image for that hash or something. And, and it's signed by, you know, the creator or whatever it is. But signatures have a market, right? Like, if I got a poster of Brad Pitt with his signature on it or something, like, that would probably be worth, that would be worth more than just the poster by itself. Same with Pokemon cards and uh, baseball cards and all this stuff. Like, there's, you know, a rare Pokemon card. People buy money for that. Or, excuse me, they, they spend money. They, they, will, they will spend a good chunk for a rare Pokemon card or a rare baseball card. But what's the size of that market? How big is it? Really? How, how big is the signed poster market? How big is the Pokemon card market? You ever seen a Pokemon card go for $50 million? A Pokemon card with just a JPEG of a rock on it? How far does the ecosystem have to fall to find what is a sustainable price in a real market? And how exposed to that do you want to be especially when we have the hardest, most sound, and first digital money in the world being monetized. For what? Money and payments. For what money is for? For secure, independent, uh, incorruptible monetary policy and secure, independent exchange. And, you know, in that context, in that comparison, um, I really like what 
how Lynn Alden puts it out, because this is, I think, the fundamental um, disagreement, I guess, between the, the crypto space and the Bitcoin space, is that crypto is, it's tech, right? It's, it's tech startups, and you have to think about it like tech, and you have to get as many customers as possible, and you got to rush out your features and blah, blah, blah. It's, it's very much the startup mindset, whereas Bitcoin is, this is a protocol, this is a foundational piece of firmware for an entirely new monetary system. Security and robustness are everything. All else is secondary, at best, maybe tertiary. But this thing has to be so digitally solid as to be unbreakable. Otherwise, nothing we build on top of it matters. And it's the difference between, as she, uh, Lynn Alden frames it, and it's been framed in a lot of different places. Like, this is, this is actually kind of a common uh, meme, I guess you could say, um, of the difference between a protocol and an operating system. Will this end up having the network tendencies of operating systems where they, they're kind of oligopoly-ish, right? They, you, you end up with these dominant, dominant operating systems that, each have their own unique uh, uh, features and the way they're used. They're kind of like kind of like social media, you know, like you you kind of have your video based and video and image based social media, and then you have your text based social media like t uh, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, all these different things. So they tend to separate out into separate communities. They they diverge a bit, and they are often used for isolated purposes or for compatibility with certain markets. So are these things operating systems? Are they the model in order to compare to, in order to, uh, so, so that we can project out and kind of see where the future of this may lie? Or are these protocols? Is this, is Bitcoin a protocol for money? Because if we look at protocol history, it is very much a winner-take-all thing. It is very much a, what is the most reliable, what is the most foundational, and every time someone else builds on top of this and continues to expand what that underlying protocol can facilitate, what is built on top of it, it tends to be a winner-take-all system. TCPIP has no real competition. There was. There were alternative internet protocols. There were attempts to hard fork TCP IP with versions that had streaming built right in. They never got off the ground. Then there's SMTP. You know, you get your messaging protocol and email, uh, a BitTorrent, like even, even the file sharing stuff. Like they almost always consolidate towards one. And I think especially when you look at the nature of Bitcoin, you look at what is possible when you use that as your your totem, your foundation for a consensus, and you can attach external value to it, which almost in entirely necessitates that those things are centralized. Tether is centralized. Um, an agreement with another company or an exchange for something physical, it's centralized. It's trusted because you are trusting the other party. But the idea that you can you can kind of use Bitcoin as your court, as your independent exchange for half of the transaction, for the, for the, the instructions of the agreement that you can write in a time lock, you can write in a fail safe, much like a lightning channel. You can set up payment 
payment network connections, much like you can set up TCP IP connections with other people with a certain amount of bandwidth. You have that exact same thing going on in Lightning. And, uh, and you can set up a semi-trusted or a trust-minimized relationship by exchanging the amount of time it is locked for the ability to enforce the valid state of the contract. And what can you build on top of that? Like, as soon as you start talking about economic activity and the ability to attach an entire digital ecosystem to this, there is no real limit. What you needed was the foundation for consensus. And that's why, and, and you needed an independent money, a way to have value that was not corruptible attached to this contract so that you knew that the outcome was, in fact, the ultimate arbiter of who owns what. And that's what I think, that's what I think these things are. That's what I think Bitcoin is. And when you add the monetary pressures, the, the network effect of needing to speak the same language in order to do business, which is the, in the context of an economic language, we're talking about which money you use and the fact that holding money in any one token or um, currency is explicitly at the, uh, at the cost of not holding that value in another currency. You know, you can't hold value in two places at once. You can have a social media and a Facebook account and you can have them both open at the same time. Or excuse me, a Twitter and a Facebook and you have them both open. But you cannot have the same sats worth of value in token A and in Bitcoin. You have to pick one or the, one or the other. And so the network effects and the, the shelling point in order to consolidate onto one, consolidate on the, the most long-term most reliable system, I think will be, uh, I think those pressures will be very great. Um, and that's why I, long term, I just don't have a lot of faith in crypto. I hope they build cool stuff. I hope something of great value comes out of it. Like, it's not like there's not cool encryption being done or people trying to build cool stuff. But um, I have this itching feeling that the fact that they attach a token to all of it very well may doom most of the projects, potentially all of them. But you know, that's why, that's why we read. That's why we do research. That's why we read Lynn Alden's analysis to see her take on it and see where, how and where she's thinking about the main principles behind these systems and, and their vulnerabilities, their attack surfaces. And will they survive if those challenges arise? If a government or a regulator comes in and decides that they want to change these things in way A, B, or C. And what kind of resistance does that quote-unquote D, the decentralization in the DeFi, really put up? What kind of security, what kind of guarantees does it actually provide? Because that's what the idea of decentralization is, right? Is that it runs on its own and it can't be controlled. It is trustless or trust minimized if it can't survive an adversary then what was the point of the appearance of decentralization because it simply wasn't i don't know we've uh we've gone pretty long here and uh i'm sure i could talk more stuff and i've actually got a couple quotes that i skipped but um we'll go ahead and close this out um thank you guys so much for listening 
I hope you guys have a very Merry Christmas. Uh, We already started in on our first Christmas today. Very exciting, lots of fun stuff, and I'll share it with you later. We've still got some fun stuff coming this week. Hopefully, uh, hopefully I got a Christmas present for you guys. Um, still a couple things to wrap up with the other episodes. Uh, so uh, wish me luck. I'll be trying to get it done tomorrow with a lot of other wrapping. And uh, until then, just stay subscribed. Stay followed on Twitter's at the Guy Swan, and I'll be around. Thanks so much to Fold, to the Bitbox, to Bitcoin 2022, and of course to Swan Bitcoin for making this show possible and for providing such incredible foundations and projects for the Bitcoin ecosystem. Seriously, my favorite companies. Uh, Don't forget to check them out. Links in the show notes, discounts, goodies for all you trusted, amazing audionauts out there. I am Guy Swan. This is Bitcoin Audible. And until next time, everybody, take it easy. You have been listening to Bitcoin Audible, a 111 production. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.